the wrath of God. It goes without a say that this attribute of God is perhaps the most despised of all attributes to those who don't know him. In fact, I dare to say that sadly even among even believers because of how much they're influenced by the world or simply ignorant of the truth about God, to them the wrath of God is an embarrassing attribute, if you like. They sense like they must apologize for it whenever it's mentioned. If it's spoken of, it's as though they, they assume that, oh no, God is naked. And they feel obligated to cover his shame somehow. And so what they do is they bury this attribute, his wrath, under all other attributes. And they fear that the world may look down upon our creator. If they hear of his wrath. How many times have we heard even those who profess to be Christians say, Oh, our God is not a God of wrath. He's, he's only a God of love. I don't know what Bible that they're reading because in the scripture there are more than 600 references about the wrath of God. Let me give you a quote by A.W. Pink. He says this, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. J.I. Packer, in his well-known book, Knowing God, Year 1973, mind you, that's 15, 50 years ago, he said this. The modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play this subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. Then he says this. How often during the past year did you hear, or if you were a minister, did you preach a sermon on the wrath of God? Brothers, this is 50 years ago. And even now, fewer churches preach on this subject. The wrath of God has dropped off the radar of our preaching. And yet, this attribute is the backdrop black velvet that makes the grace and the love of God shine brightly. Take away the wrath and you have crippled your understanding of the grace and the love of God. No other doctrine in the scriptures that make the grace of God more amazing, the love so magnified than to know those whom Jesus poured out his precious blood for are worthy of nothing but the fierce wrath of the holy God and yet he died for them anyway. 
No other doctrine will restore back into the hearts of the believers godly fear, hatred towards sin. No other doctrine that strikes the hearts of the unbelievers to understand the gravity of their sin and the urgency to repent speedily than this doctrine. When it comes to the wrath of God, how important is it to listen with attentive ears? How crucial is it to tremble in the presence of a a holy, divine, fury God? To bow down in utter reverence and awe before Him whose righteous anger, the power of His vengeance and the fury of His wrath demand our whole attention. We must listen and listen carefully to what the scripture teaches on God's wrath. The outline for today will be three points. We're going to talk about the nature of the wrath, God's wrath. We'll talk about description. How do we describe this wrath? And then finally, we want to look at the different kinds of God's wrath. So first we'll start with the nature. In other words, like how do we define this? Now in Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, it says, A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. What does this mean that Yahweh is wrathful? Well, let's, let's talk about what it does not mean. Okay. Now it doesn't mean that God has a sinful, a malicious outburst of anger like we do. That's not what it means. It's not a loss of temper. God, in his wrath, doesn't rise out of an irrational or selfish passion like we do many times. In other words, it's not a divine tantrum. You know what I mean by divine tantrum? It's not like that God doesn't get his way. He feels offended. So he spits the dummy and he takes advantage of his size and then bullies those that are weaker than him by by chucking this big, massive tantrum. And then we call that God's wrath. That's not like that. That's not what we're talking about. So what are we talking about when we say the wrath of God? Well, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 There are many, many examples. Like I said, there are more than 600 references. Here is one of them. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When we speak of God's wrath, we're talking about how God feels towards unbelievers precisely because of their sin. And that's what we're talking about. Now, why does God feel wrathful because of sin? What is the underlying reason? Psalm 7 verse 11 tells us, God is a righteous judge. And here is a connection. And a God who feels indignation every day. Is that direct connection between him being righteous, being just to judge, And he feels indignation every day. If God were not angry with wickedness of man, he wouldn't be a perfect righteous judge. 
but because he is righteous. He is holy, just, and pure. He must, by implication, be wrathful towards sinfulness of man. So, God's wrath arises from his deep, settled hatred towards sin. His self-willed determination to punish to the utmost every wicked person that shakes his fist and opposes God. So God's wrath doesn't have this resemblance um, at all whatsoever to the sinful emotion of human wrath. It's not like us when we're wrathful. But it does describe how God infinitely loves purity, how he feels towards his creatures when I defy him. When I love wickedness, God who is perfectly excellent in every way, he must by his moral nature that he possesses, that he has, he has to be angry against sin. And not just because sin ruins everything, but far more important than that, because sin is a defiance against his supreme judge. We can look at it another way. You can say to, to be wrathful against lawbreakers is the only right and proper response of a perfect judge to uphold his moral authority with absolute intolerance. So we come to the very quickly to the end of this point brothers i want to say to you we must not be apologetic to the fact that our god is indeed wrathful towards sinfulness of man to deny this is to deny his perfect righteousness and we can't do that so how do we define god's wrath you can say it's a chemical reaction that when the wickedness of man is exposed to the holiness, the righteousness of God, then the outcome is heated indignation against them, against people. It's God's indignation that arises from his perfect moral nature against the wickedness of man. And what is the result? Judgment, condemnation, and punishment. That's what God's wrath is, and it's very real, and it is justified. Okay, that's that's kind of a quick definition of what it is. Now, how would we describe this wrath? How do we describe it? There are three, at least three ways you can look at that wrath of God. And then we begin to kind of flesh it out. First, God's wrath is a fury wrath. That's what the scripture describes God's wrath to be. Fury, burning, red, hot lava. Sometimes it's called fire. Now, why is that? Why does the scripture speak 
um, of God's wrath to be fiery, red-hot lava. It's just an expression of how intense this wrath is. Deuteronomy 29 verse 27 and 28 it says, Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and in fury and in great wrath. Notice strong words that speak of intention. And it says, I cast them into another land as it is day, as it is this day. So because of the intensity of the divine wrath, God is about to execute it. Not just his anger, but his fury, his great wrath. Other places in the scripture describes God's wrath to be fierce wrath, burning anger, fiery indignation, consuming fire. And this, mind you, doesn't just speak of God's own internal uh, character of how he responds to sin, but also the severity of God's punishment that he will execute. What we need to understand is that God never does anything half-heartedly. When he loves, he loves to the uttermost. When he's wrathful, he is wrathful to the uttermost. It is a fury wrath, meaning when sinners are subjected to God's wrath, they wouldn't be able even for one moment to reduce this punishment that they're about to endure one bit from God. They won't be able to. And even if they had the strength of the entire world, ten thousands of Goliaths put together and they join hand to hand and then they try to uh, reduce the severity of God's wrath, they will not be able to one bit. Fury. The second, and it gets worse, it's pitiless wrath, meaning there is no sympathy in wrath. There's no compassion. When God pours out his wrath, it is not that he is dragging his feet and exercises wrath unwillingly. God is never coerced. He's never done anything, nor will he ever do anything unwillingly. Ezekiel 8 verse 18 says, Therefore, that's God speaking, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity. Do we understand this? Nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not listen to them. I'm just reading God's word. That's it. They have fallen in the hands of an angry God. Who will protect him from me, God says. What does this mean? Let's understand what it's saying. 
that when God sees how hopeless your situation is, how overwhelmed and crushed your soul feels, how you're drowning in darkness, He will not feel sorry for you. That's what it says. He will not hold back His anger or lessen His punishment for you. You'll be merciless in His wrath. He won't hold back anything, even though it may be too much for you to bear. No pity, no compassion, no sympathy. What does that mean? It means this, that today is a day of mercy. God is ready to shower you with mercy. It is a day where you can cry out to God and there is hope to obtain forgiveness. But once this day of mercy passes, your cries, your pleas will be useless. On a day when God pours His wrath, he completely abandons the sinner. He will have absolutely no concern whatsoever for his well-being. God will see this sinner no more than just an object to suffer in misery. And you will be like a vessel that has no other purpose than to be destined for destruction, filled with wrath. In that day of wrath, God will not pity unbelievers even if they cry out to him it's a fury wrath it's a pitiless wrath and it follows it is obvious it's a terrifying wrath terrifying unbelievers may be oblivious to this fact of how fearful God's wrath would be. But what happens the moment they've, they're faced, face to face with their maker? Let me read to you some passages in the scripture that speak of this. Revelation 6 verse 16 and 17, it says, They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand? They would rather use the rocks and the mountains and dust and ashes as their blanket, as their quilt, rather that than to face the wrath of the Almighty. Psalm 2 verse 5, it says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Psalm 83, verse 14 and 15. Like fire that burns the forest, like a flame that sets the mountain on fire, so God pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Where is this false notion that says my God is a God of love he will never send me to hell where is that when God pours out his wrath upon the unregenerate unconverted their hearts will sink to their feet and they will realize how dreadful it will be to fall in the hands of a wrathful God God's wrath 
is a furious wrath, terrifying wrath, pitiless wrath. Okay, now that's that's God's wrath. What about the types? Now, not not every time the scripture speaks of wrath, it's the same kind of wrath. There are what we would say five different kinds of God's wrath. And we want to study this and see how we can apply them in our lives. The first kind of wrath is a cataclysmic wrath. It's a disastrous, it's a devastating at a grand scale. It's a catastrophic wrath that, that God would pour down from heaven upon nations or big cities. Nations don't have souls, so if God would punish nations, it must be done at that, re- at that generation. Think of the flood in Genesis 6 where only eight people survived and the rest of the mankind, what happened to them? They were destroyed by being drowned underwater. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many families survived? Only one family, again. And even then, the wife has turned into a pillar of salt. And then what happened to the rest of the people? Literally consumed by fire. Heaven opened up. Fire poured down, turned Sodom and Gomorrah into a bonfire. Just consumed everything. And why? Because they turned away from God to satisfy their cravings. God's wrath doesn't believe in majority vote, right? It's not like, you know, we get the group of people and let's just vote. Should God pour down his wrath or not? And then God would look and say, oh, look, you know, 90% say no, then I guess I'll have to withhold my wrath. It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't matter whether most people agree or disagree. If a nation goes in one direction, again as God, they suffer the consequences. Think of the ten plagues in Egypt. Waves, one devastating plague after another that would make the global financial crisis combined with, I don't know, COVID-19 and all our problems combined together look like a a mosquito bite compared to the devastation of that wrath. Do, do you remember how these plagues ended? Spilling of the blood of the firstborn son in Egypt, in every firstborn son. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the terror in the eyes of the unbelievers. The shriek of their hearts, the wailing, the violent cry of the parents. Imagine that. They're carrying on their laps their dead children. Weeping, crying, gnashing of teeth because of God's wrath. All that because of their arrogance. How they didn't fear God. They refused God to reign over them. And so they were made worthy to drink the cup of his wrath. So that's cataclysmic wrath. Then you have eschatological wrath. Eschatological 
meaning end time. The wrath in the last days, you recall there are are seven seals, trumpets, and judgments, bowls of judgments, and they're all combined together about seven years in total, beginning from Revelation 6 and ends up at the climax of Revelation 19. Seven years. Some people... Imagine Jesus to be a sissy boy, a feminine, some some man with a long, blonde, silky hair laying on his shoulders, soft hands. Oh, he wouldn't hurt a fly. Oh, boy. Will these people be in for a big surprise when they see Christ? Like it says in Revelation 19, you go for it and read it for yourself. Revelation 19, where Christ would be splitting the sky wide open, galloping in his horse, bolting down from heaven to earth. And then what will he do? He'll place himself in that seat of judgment and personally, by his own hand, personally administers the execution of his own wrath upon the wicked people who reject him. This is the end time. No one will touch them but Christ. Abiding wrath, number three. Abiding wrath. Right now, as we speak, John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, meaning no wrath for believers. We praise God for that. But let's continue. But he who does not obey in what context? In the context of believing, refuses to believe. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. But here it comes. You ready for it? The wrath of God. The wrath of God will abide in him? No. No. Abides currently, as we speak, on him. Meaning, while the unbeliever may enjoy himself, the wrath of the Almighty God is hovering over his head. It's gathering up, forming a a big thunderstorm. It's only a matter of time where lightning will strike. And this unbeliever will find himself in a tormenting hell forever. My God is a God of love without even understanding what this means. Let me read to you what the scripture says. Psalm 5 verse 5. You hate All who do iniquity, the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God abhors all sinners. Very personal, in a very personal way. Psalm 11 verse 5, it says, The one who loves violence, his soul hates. God is angry. With the unconverted sinners, this moment, 
as we speak and every moment. So the sinner would go to bed, he would sleep, place his head on the pillow with an angry God staring at his face. And even if an unbeliever would have sweet dreams, looking forward to waking up in the morning to enjoy his day at work with his family or continuing to watch a series in Netflix or whatever, play games. For any moment, suppose that you are given a spiritual telescope and using this telescope, you want to see, you're allowed to see what God's face looks like when he's looking at you. What would you see? An indignant God, a God who is ready at any moment to unleash his wrath without any restraint. And so, as long as a sinner remains to be in this state of rejecting Jesus Christ, no matter the age, no matter how nice or innocent the person may come across to be, God is angry with him. Just to help you understand this, I'll just give you a quick illustration. A couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, I found a, a dead mouse at the back of my house. So what did I do? I did what I guess any man would do. I just picked up that uh, mouse from its tail. And was kind of dangling there. I just started making my way all the way to the front of the house. Don't worry, I had gloves. So, And as I was making my way to the front of the house while I'm carrying this mouse, because I wanted to chuck it out and outside being everyone in the house at that time that saw me carrying it, how did they feel? They were disgusted. They began to scream in horror. Yuck! There's a dead mouse hanging from its tail. Take this feeling of disgust and multiply 10,000 upon 10,000 and 10,000 more and you have not even yet reached how repugnant God is towards the unconverted people who infinitely offend him by their evil deeds. God in his righteousness would find them repulsive to the uttermost. And no matter how much they pray, read the Bible, go to church, nothing good they would ever do that would be able to cover this rottenness of their filth. Before God, whose eyes, what does the scripture say? Too pure to behold evil. And the longer friend, unbelieving friend, the longer you remain in the state of rejecting Jesus Christ, the more intense this fury of God's wrath will be. Again, while we're in this point, Psalm 7, verse 11 and 12, it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day, abiding wrath. 
If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Listen to the Jonathan Edwards' um, interpretation of this passage. Jonathan Edwards says, The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on a string. And justice directs the bow to your heart and strains at the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. May God resurrect preachers like Jonathan Edwards. What's he saying? The eternal oven is getting hotter by the minute. The blazing flaming of the tormentor flying higher and the mouth of hell is widening its jaws ready to swallow all those that reject Jesus Christ. And what is it that is holding unbelievers from falling into their eternal misery? It's not because they're too clever and they made sure that they drive at the speed limit. It is not because of your vitamins and the minerals that you drink in order to keep yourself healthy. That is not what is keeping unbelievers from falling into their miserable eternal hell. What is it? Nothing but the hand of God who's angry with unbelievers. A God who is not, Jonathan says, under any obligation whatsoever. You will never find a promise, in other words, in the scripture that tells you that God will keep you even for one more moment on earth before casting you into hell. No obligation whatsoever why he shouldn't let go and drop you into hell forever. Terrible. Scary. All right. This is abiding wrath. We come to the fourth, second last. Abandoning wrath. Abandoning wrath. When a person hears the call to come to Jesus, then willfully and repeatedly rejects Christ, God then eventually would draw a line on the sand and he would say, if that's what you want, that's what you get. What does that mean practically? It just simply means that God will stop calling people to repent. He will stop convicting them. Pharaoh, scripture says about Pharaoh that he hardened his heart so many times. Meaning he did not adhere to God's calling. He never repented. And what's the result of his willful refusal? Now, if you read it, that'll be in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 8 where Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times. He said, hardened heart, hardened heart. And then in Exodus chapter 9 verse 12, it says what? The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And what God is saying is, is this really what you want? Have you calculated 
your profit and loss, and yet you came out rejecting my calling? Very well, have it your way. No more conviction, Pharaoh. No more heartache. Your conscience is seared. You have reached a point of no return. There is now only one direction moving forward. What is it? Down. 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 To the pit of hell. And by the way, this wrath, abandoning wrath, is all over the scripture. That when a sinner rejects the gospel invitation repeatedly, continually, because what? Because they're obsessed with their evil ways, then God would rub their noses in it and he hands them over. He gives them what they want. So what is this abandoning wrath? Abandoning wrath is when God executes judgment even long before the sinner actually dies. It's as if God cemented the deal, solidified the sinner's destiny based on what? Based on his willful, continual rejection. And then he gives a momentum in that direction that he passionately wants to go through. Terrifying, is it not? Terrifying. So scary to hear the gospel preached. Invitation is extended. And you understand it, it, what you need to do to trust in Jesus Christ. And then you reject it. And you reject it again and you reject it again. Abandoning wrath. But you know what? This is nothing compared to the last kind of wrath. What is it? It's the eternal wrath. Eternal wrath. That is the forever wrath. Non-ending wrath. That is to say that nothing will restrain God from punishing the unbelievers. All of his fury will be unleashed. Again, this wrath is not impulsive. It's not emotional outburst. What is really scary about it is it is well measured, calculated, yet merciless, graceless response of a just God against all sinners. Let's read what the scripture says of this eternal wrath. Revelation 14, verse 10 to 11, it says, He also will dr drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment, what happens to it? goes up forever and ever and they will have no rest. Just to make sure you don't, you get it right, they will have no rest day and night. The cup of God's anger is strong. It's like an undiluted wine. It is so potent vengeance, unmixed, meaning there's not even one drop of compassion in this wrath. Torment. It speaks of inflicted agony with unspeakable pain. 
What does the scripture say? The lamb will be there. And it's not like God is going to be deaf. It's not like Jesus is going to be deaf. He's not going to be hearing the wailing, the gnashing of teeth. He will be hearing the complaints of sinners. He will be hearing their cries. He will, be, he will know that they're begging him for mercy, but he will not save them. He won't pity them as even with one drop of water of compassion to ease their eternal pain. This everlasting calamity of this wrath will make all kinds of wrath like a driving over a speed hump. All, all kinds of wrath, all the other wrath. It's like God is smacking the unbeliever with a wooden spoon. But this one, this eternal wrath, God will continually to smite them with a rod of iron in his unimaginable fury, in his omnipotence of his power. Not only will God punish them, but he will do it with, with ease. He won't get tired over time. He won't say, oh, I'm getting tendonitis. It's an eternal, unchangeable God. He'll do it with the force of his justice. And nothing will lighten the impact of those strikes. In their suffering, the unbelievers will find no rest. Friends. I am sure that you would agree with me that there is nothing more dreadful than the eternal wrath of God with the full fury, pitiless, terrifying anger of God. will surround you. And you'll be drowning in it. Cataclysmic wrath, eschatological wrath, abiding wrath, abandoning wrath, eternal wrath. How do we conclude this dreadful message? But so needy at the same time. Well, number one, how we ought to bow our knees in such reverence, in utter humility, and embrace God's own self-revelation of himself and say, God, I'm not going to only believe the parts that make me feel comfortable. Nor am I going to kind of wiggle my way through the scripture and try to interpret what makes me feel uncomfortable in a way to make me feel uncomfortable. No, I am going to believe all that you say about yourself in your word as is. Second way to apply this. And from this point onwards, I want to address the unconverted Souls in this room, children, young men, men, women, all those unregenerated souls. 
I want to be forthright with you and tell you there is nothing that holds you back from your current state of abiding wrath to your eternal state in the eternal wrath. Nothing holds you back other than God's patience. But time is running out. The clock is ticking and God's patience will come to an end. I passed by my father, my father's um, graveyard yesterday in the cemetery. And I recalled the day when I buried my father and I looked on the right-hand side, there was the stone where it says on the stone, a man, 45 years of age, riding a motorbike and had an accident and died on that spot. And I look on the other side, a little girl, seven years old, had a car accident and died on the spot. And then two graves after my dad, a 10-year-old boy, and there's a 14-year-old boy. And I assure you, most of these people that died on that morning when they left home, they never, never expected that they were going to die. All thought they were going to come back home. God's patience runs out. Please, friend. I urge you to think of the danger that you're facing right now. I plead with every unbeliever in this room. The bottomless pit is very wide. This fiery furnace of God's wrath is unbearably hot. And you are but a sneeze away. The wrong cough. It will lead you there to your damnation forever. And what is holding you back from falling? Just for the short time is the fact that you're in the hands of a God that you are provoking every day because of your iniquity and sin. It is His pleasure that when you're least expecting it, He will cast you into hell. And there is no good works, no prayer, nothing you could do that will help you. To wiggle your way out of the fist of God's wrath. What brokenness must you be before such a mighty God? What urgency, eagerness this should put into your heart to flee the wrath to come. Friend, consider the length of time of your torment, your miserable soul has to endure if you're exposed to this eternal wrath of God. That after millions of years upon millions of years that you would endure and wrestle with this merciless, all-powerful wrath, you will discover that you have endured nothing but just a drop of water of the ocean in comparison to the eternal wrath that you will experience. And when you look ahead, hoping to see a glimpse 
that, that you'll be comforted. What are you going to see? You're going to see the time is stretching before your eyes to no end. And you're going to realize that there's no relief of your pain. What are you going to do? You will curse yourself for not embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior when you had a chance. Right? I've spoken to every unbeliever in this room, I believe. I know what you're thinking most of the time. Oh, that's not going to happen to me, Pastor. Why? I worked it all out. I got my life sorted. How come? Well, you know, I'm currently enjoying my sin for a season and what I had enough, I repent. Right. Friend. Would you consider the foolishness of your thought? Let me prove to you how foolish this thought is. Because if if we would get to see those people that are burning in hell right now, do you know, do you have any idea how many those multitudes of those people who are in hell right now, before they died, had the same foolish thought as you do? And then what happened? Look at their miserable state, right? Do you actually think that you're wiser than them? That you're more intelligent? And if you get to hear them now, what would they say? Let me tell you what they would say. They would say, I never intended to be here. I thought I planned my life out really well. I deceived myself. And I thought that tomorrow I repent. Oh, but God's wrath caught me as a thief in the night when I was least expecting it. And they would curse themselves and they would say, Oh, cursed is the day I was born. How many times the gospel was preached to me. Oh, how many times I heard God calling upon me to come to Christ and find rest. It was so clear and piercing to my ears and my heart. Oh, my stubbornness. Why did I harden my heart when my father was pleading with me to repent? Oh, my foolishness. Why, why have I not trusted in Jesus when I had a chance? Oh, what would I give to have one more chance, one more opportunity to repent and believe in Christ? Oh, what would I give up for God, for God to grant me mercy? But it's too late. It will be too late, friend. It will be too late. As I said, today is a day of mercy. Now is a time of your salvation. But a day will come that no matter how much you would weep and cry, the Almighty God will not hear. Remember, it is a pitiless wrath. Pitiless. 
Let me tell you, let me read to you a terrifying verse in the scripture that God himself spoke. Did he leave it to a prophet to describe it? God himself said in Isaiah 63 verse 3, says, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I, has, and I stained all my raiment. It's my clothing. In the day of your doom, when God will pour out his fierce wrath upon you, you will cry for pity, but he will not show any compassion. And you won't be able to bear the weight of his crushing power. He will know that, but he won't care. And he will trample you under his feet. And you'll be treated like the dust of the earth that's sprinkled up. You're, he will he will pound you, he will ravage you, and your blood will burst out, will stain his garment. But he won't move internally towards you. Let's reason together, friend. Let's reason together. Have rest from, from your suppressing of the truth and think. Think of eternity. What is in your sin that could possibly be worthy of enduring this consuming force of God's wrath? What in God's name would you watch multitudes of people, your wife, your children, your mother, come into Christ, people that are as vile as, as you and more vile than you, flock to Jesus, rejoice in his, in his salvation while you remain in your stubbornness from coming to him. I plead with you. Children, I plead with you. Young men at the back, at the very back. Rise up your heads, listen to me. Men, let me tell you a better way to respond than being stubborn. How about you respond like the tax collector? Beat your chest. Say, God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. Why don't you do that? What a beautiful Savior we have. You know that Jesus came because exactly of God's wrath. He came as a sinless lamb of God in order so that he would be hung on the cross. So that that wrath that is meant to be poured out upon sinners, to be poured out upon Christ. That full fury, terrifying, pitiless wrath of God has fallen upon Christ. So that your life would be spared. And he does not demand you to swim across oceans or to climb mountains or to fast or to be a good person. He only demands of you 
to lay down your weapon of self-righteousness that justifies and suppresses the truth as though that you're a good person apart from him. Lay down his weapon and surrender your life. You hand over your soul to Christ in order to preserve it for you. This Jesus the Son of God rose from the dead, ascended to the highest of heaven. So we call him Prince of Life, meaning he swung open the gates of heaven. And if you, you sinner, who right now abide God's wrath abiding upon you, you can flee that wrath to come by crying out to Jesus to save you. I urge you. I urge you, in the name of God who is wrathful, run to Christ. Flee, flee from his anger into his own mercy. Let him embrace you. Don't wait for a moment. Right now, right now you repent. Right now you come to Christ. Right now, you hand over your sin to him and you say to him, I'm a vile, wicked sinner. I see it. I do not justify it. I see exactly what I'm like and I hand it over to you, Jesus. Save me. Save my soul. Oh, will he save you and will he forgive you and embrace you and turn you from a child of a devil to be a child of God? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God. You, God, who you are, you are what you say who you are. And we bow down before all your attributes. And we say, there are people in this room, God, that have not yet enjoyed your mercy. And as we speak, they're experiencing the abiding wrath. And there is no reason whatsoever why they did not die in their sleep last night or on their way to come to this room. Or even this moment, there is no reason whatsoever that they would not die in their breath and end up in hell forever. In the name of Jesus, we plead with you, God, to convict them one more time, to open their eyes, to let them see Jesus as their Savior. And so they would run and hide in his wounds from the wrath to come. Please, Lord, do this for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.